Welcome to Iron Rhetoric with your intrepid host, Pastor Brett McAtee. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. In 2008, hard to believe that's 15 years ago. I was asked to present a paper at, oh, I forgot to greet you. Hello, this is Pastor Brett at Charlotte Christ the King Reformed Church in Charlotte, Michigan. I'm here with my um, friend and tech guru, Matt Smith. And um, you all should send thank you notes to Matt if you enjoy this because it couldn't be done without him. Um, And today we want to look at uh, worldview issues. in 2008, I was asked to present a paper at my alma mater. When I went there, they called it Marion College. It was a hole in the wall, to be honest. Um, they now have upgraded, and when I go back, and I go back very seldom, but when I go back, it, I don't even recognize the place. It's it's so completely different now. Um, I suppose from a purely uh, aesthetic uh viewpoint that they've made incredible um, leaps forward. But in 2008, I went back and did a, a paper in honor of my mentor, Dr. Glenn Martin. Uh, Glenn died in, I think it was 2006. I think that's right. Um, he's probably one of the greatest men I've, I've known in my life. Um, he was a mentor. Uh, he was incredibly patient with me over the years. Um, and uh, the whole trajectory of my life in terms of my belief system can be dated to when I came underneath his tutelage. Um, he's the one that taught me worldview thinking. He's the one that taught me presuppositionalism. Um, and again, I still had, once I was done there, I was still in diapers in, ter- in terms of understanding these things. But he set me on an arc and a trajectory um, that accounts for where I'm at today. So I owe a great a great debt of gratitude to Dr. Uh, to Dr. Glenn Martin. Uh, he chaired and taught in the social sciences department at Indiana Wesleyan University, where I attended from 77 to 82 with a brief semester uh, break, taking off in order to make some money to pay some more bills for college. Uh, We would say that Martin was the um, Arminian version of R.J. Rushdoony, although I'm not sure he would even admit to being an Arminian. He was the man who first, uh, as I said, introduced me uh, to presuppositionalism and worldview thinking. He was a big fan of Francis Schaeffer, Of course, later coming across others like Van Til and Gordon Clark, you know, I would have some questions about Schaefer. But again, Schaefer um, was can be classified as a presuppositionalist and worldview thinker. Um, And so, Martin was my mentor. Though I've left his Arminian expressions of worldview thinking uh, for the more consistent expression of the same founding reform thought and theology, Martin will always remain the man who made. And God's providence, all the difference for me. Uh, I encourage you to consider buying his book. It can be found secondhand in, in a pretty 
inexpensive uh, at a pretty inexpensive cost. It was pub- posthumously titled, uh, I'm sorry, published and titled uh, Prevailing World Views, where in the back of the cover you'll find my endorsement for whatever little that's worth. Uh, my endorsement reads, Dr. Martin's ability to combine passion with intellect in the cause of King Christ is something with the, which the church yet stands in desperate need. Likewise, Dr. Martin's critical thinking skills as displayed in his ability to analyze and offer solutions from a Christocentric position is an elixir that the church must drink again at the West and his culture would once again be of any consequence. So that gives you a a little bit of insight into actually both him and me. Um, I guess I would say if all the world could be Arminian, I'd be tempted to say um, if they could all be Arminian the way that Dr. Glenn Martin was, I'd be tempted to say um, that would be okay. Uh, I can't really say that because of a whole host of other issues, but he was top drawer. Unfortunately, as often is the case with with geniuses, um, Indiana Wesleyan University, who employed him, has done their best to drop him down their memory hole. Um, he was an embarrassment to the secularist and the humanist on campus, and of course you're talking about an academic setting, and so that's going to be the lion's share of people. Um, his presuppositional worldview thinking was not with a piece with Barthianism, which uh, the Wesleyans have been, uh, since my departure, have been influenced by, as well as postmodernism. Um, that's characteristic of many of the departments today in Indiana Wesleyan University, and that's one reason Martin has been dropped down the memory hole. That and just the way that jealousy works uh, in the university academia setting. Uh, Martin was well-loved, um, and he, by his teaching, challenged what was being taught in these other departments. And so the long knives came out for for Glenn Martin, although he was able to uh, survive uh, the long knives, and he died while uh, head of the department there at Indiana Wesleyan. So let's give a brief overview of Christ as king. Martin's guiding premise was the lordship of Jesus Christ over every sphere of reality, over every area of life. Um, He would have been very comfortable and probably had read Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, when he said there is no one area that Christ doesn't point to and say mine. That was his premise. Um, And when I came across Kuiper saying that many years later, I thought, oh, I've heard that before. It was, came from Martin. That was the other way around, obviously. Martin expressed this constantly, this lordship of Jesus Christ, by his call to think in such a way that begins and ends with the God of the Bible, regardless of what sphere or discipline one is contemplating in their thought life. And so what we try to do in this podcast is attempt to speak to Christ, the church's responsibility to proclaim the mediatorial kingship of Jesus Christ. Beginning with God's revealed word, we would contend that the purpose and mission of the church is in submission to Christ's office as prophet is to proclaim Christ in his mediatorial capacity as high priest and king of kings. The church's purpose and mission is to proclaim Christ and that necessitates a return to an emphasis where Jesus once again placarded the men in his mediatorial offices as prophet, priest, and king under sovereign God. Scripture has such a purpose and mission for the church as seen in what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Here I quote, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make 
disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we find Jesus having completed his high priestly work on the cross, now in his office as king, speaking as one with all authority, all exousia. From his office of king, he commissions the first representatives of the post-resurrection church to bring the priestly, baptizing, and kingly, teaching to observe all things, work of Christ to all the nations. In 1 Corinthians 15, we find one of the greatest explanations regarding the implications of the high priestly work of Christ in providing his church's salvation. The apostle Paul can start by noting, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Yet even in this chapter, we find lineaments putting forth the kingly office of Jesus Christ. Paul writes later in chapter 15, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The kingly rule of Christ mentioned here by the inspired apostle obviously has a now-not-yet quality that is put together in such a way to suggest interesting eschatological conclusions. But regardless of one's eschatology, clearly the church is reminded by Paul's inspired words in 1 Corinthians 15 that discussions regarding the gospel include the idea of the absolute kingship of Jesus Christ. He must reign. Who's he? Christ, the king, until he's put all enemies under his feet. We see this emphasis again on the kingship of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1. There we find the idea of Christ as priest and king are brought forth in tandem. Early in the chapter, we're told in reference to Christ's priestly office that in him, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his grace. And this is followed a few verses later by a reference to Christ's kingly work, where we are reminded that the working of God's mighty power was, quote, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Once again, we see that our great high priest is king over all for the sake of the church. And since this is true, the church cannot proclaim a gospel that does not include the news of Christ's absolute mediatorial kingship. In Acts 5.31, Peter can put these two offices together by noting that by noting of Jesus that God hath exalted him to his right hand to be prince and savior. Again in Acts 17.17, those who opposed the gospel had no doubt that the gospel pronouncement was not limited to Jesus vested in his high priestly office, but also included the authority of Jesus in his office of great high king. The envious Jews in Thessalonica framed their objection to those who brought the gospel by charging that Jason has harbored them And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Indeed, throughout the book of Acts, the twin themes of the preaching church were the kingdom of God and the resurrection. These twin themes lend support to the observation that the church's purpose and mission are to proclaim Christ in his mediatorial capacity as high priest and king of kings. Most importantly, The idea that the purpose and mission of the church include the good news of Christ as priest and king is seen in the complex of the redemptive events in the person and work of Christ. Jesus was crucified as a sin offering, accomplishing that component of his priestly work of salvation, 
while in his ascension, Jesus' kingship was inaugurated. The church can hardly speak of one of these offices without immediately referencing the other. The offices are certainly distinct, that is, priest and king, but they are in no way divorced. And the church needs to realize that today again. The church wants to talk, and well it should, about Christ and his priestly work. The Christ and his suffering, Christ and his crucifixion, Christ and his priestly work in interceding for his people. But we must not forget also to speak of his kingly work. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And that kingship is not ethereal. It's not Gnostic. It expresses itself corporally in this world via the king's men, that is, believers. So for to begin to end end with God in our thinking regarding his church, we must conclude that the primary mission and purpose of the church is to proclaim Christ in his mediatorial capacity as high priest and king of kings. And when we do that, then we're automatically also articulating his prophetic role because we can't speak of Christ that way as great high priest and king of kings without, without speaking prophetically from the scriptures or speaking as prophets under Christ in the scripture. The teaching of Scripture on the primary purpose and mission of the church is too often in abeyance in the modern church in America. The church's proclamation on Christ's mediatorial priestly office wherein he's Savior has been eclipsed by categories foreign to that message. The church's proclamation on Christ's mediatorial kingly office wherein he is Lord has been replaced by a view where Jesus' kingship is of the Gnostic-like variety. So let's deal with these in reverse order. Uh, let's look at the Gnostic king Jesus and his incredibly shrunken realm. In the abstract, most evangelicals would mouth the words that Jesus is Lord. But when the, that confession has the expectation of being made concrete in this world, the lordship of Jesus Christ begins to dissipate. I submit that the evangelical church has embraced a type of Gnostic king Jesus who is sovereign in the spiritual ethereal realm but whose kingship has little to do with the corporeal material realm in which man does his daily living. We see that in Radical Two Kingdom theology. They want to make the lordship of Jesus Christ Gnostic. Christ rules explicitly in the church, and then he only rules in his left by his left hand um, in the common realm, where Christians do most of their living, by the way. The way this is developed in the West um, this absence, or rather this presence of the Gnostic King Jesus was by embracing a theology or an epistemology where a sacred realm was created where the lordship of Christ is unquestioned, leaving a putatively secular realm that was neutral or common where believers in Christ and believers in other gods cooperate according to the dictates of shared autonomous reason. Um, this is articulated in the book Foundations of Christian Scholarship, um, and this as edited by uh, Gary North. He says, quote, The formatted dualism of classical philosophy was transferred into the medieval variant of nature-grace schema. Natural philosophy or natural reason was given full autonomy in the area of common ground. Both believers and unbelievers can use this hypothetically neutral reasoning faculty to discover identical truths in the realm of nature. 
Grace, the realm of faith, was alone closed to the reasoning powers of the pagan world. Revelation was needed to provide men with full knowledge of faith, the sacraments, and the church. The problem, of course, with this arrangement is at least threefold. First, by appealing to reason, what happens is that man's intellect is made autonomous in the common realm. And so the starting point for all of his thinking is self-referential. Instead of beginning and ending with God, he begins and ends with himself. In essence, man, either in his individual expression or or in his corporate expression, is now lord of the putatively neutral realm. We say putatively because there is no neutral realm. The second problem uh, with this idea of... uh, a Gnostic King Jesus is the notion that any that man can have any realm with where he can operate without a pre-commitment to some theological a priori. Man can do nothing in any realm without being informed by some faith commitment. Um, it was Martin that required his students to read Thomas Kuhn's Structures and Scientific Revolution, and I believe he did so in order to awaken those students to the reality that man cannot escape his a priori faith com- commitments. And so... There is no neutral realm. There is no secular realm. There is no R2K common realm. All of these realms are rife with theological presuppositions. And the Christian can't go into the common realm leaving behind um, particular special revelation. He can't go into that realm thinking that the presuppositions that he has about the nature of reality are going to be the same as the presuppositions that other individuals from other faiths have in that same common realm. And the more that we move away from biblical Christianity, the more we see the the friction in the common realm. That's what makes R2K so bizarre, because we are more and more moving away from biblical Christianity. They offer themselves as a solution, but the solution is even more of the same poison. The third problem is that in assuming that a shared common or neutral realm can exist apart from the lordship of Christ, one destroys the idea of the antithesis that one finds in Scripture. From Genesis 3.15 to the end of God's holy writ, we find a warfare worldview where the seed of the serpent and the Lord and their Lord contest against the seed of the woman and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the antithesis is in total eclipse, this side of the eschaton, there the Lord Jesus and his lordship has been surrendered. Now, because of this compartmentalization, we now have a sacred realm where Christ is Lord and the standard is his eternal word, while at the same time having a secular realm where autonomous man is Lord, where the standard is his relativistic word. In the former realm, man begins and ends his thinking with God. In the latter realm, man begins and ends his thinking with by means of his autonomous self. The consequence of this is a contemporary church that is filled with individuals who claim a Jesus who saves their non-corporeal souls, but who have not been taught to think God's thoughts after him in every area of life, and who have not been taught that Jesus is a king, as a king, has a word on how to incarnate and bring their salvation into the material world through the holy callings in which they're called. Jesus is thus a Gnostic king with an incredibly shrunken realm. He saves our souls, but it leaves our material realm largely untouched. This dualism, this Gnosticism, and all Gnosticism is dualistic, 
this dualism with its sacred secular dichotomy has survived successfully as long as it has in America for two reasons. First, because one of the remaining influences of a Christian world and life view on the societal institutional infrastructures, the autonomously manufactured common realm has been able to function. So in other words, what I'm saying here is that we're able to have this sacred secular dichotomy because it really is the case that the secular realm has been living off the fumes of biblical Christianity, and so it was able to continue to uh, limp along. The leavening of Christendom in America through the beginnings of the Holy Commonwealth, which did not allow for the kind of bifurcation that we have spoken of, has taken centuries to completely eradicate, such as the strength of biblical Christianity. But now the fumes are almost completely gone. And we're seeing that, right? The reason that we no longer have the cohesion that we once had in our culture is because there's no longer, the fumes are no longer there to burn. And so now, whereas the fumes of Christianity could allow a pretend secular realm, those fumes having been exhausted, we now find um, Obergefell versus Hodges, where sodomites can marry one another. We now find transgenderism. We now no longer have the ability to answer the question, what is a woman? Um, we're all kinds. We're now um, cutting the breast off of children. Um, we're now cutting penises off of boys. Um, this, these are things that would not have happened thirty, even thirty years ago, because there were still some fumes of Christianity left in the tank. But those fumes again have been burnt. They have to burn off at some point if you're not going to fill the tank back back up. And that's why we're at where we're at. We would say also the secular realm has survived because the sacred realm, Christianity, has increasingly redefined itself in order to accommodate the demands of the secular realm. Um, this second eventuality was recognized 70 years ago even. Um, and so what we're saying here is we've gotten a kind of a syncretism. Uh, Christianity has moved more and more uh, towards so-called secularism, which was really humanism, and has continued to redefine itself in their direction. And the syncretism, this redefining ourselves in order to accommodate the secular, so-called secular realm, was noted in, uh, by Charles Potter in his book Humanism, A New Religion, where Potter wrote, quote, It will be remembered that the theory of evolution found its bitterest and most persistent opponents among the theistic religionists. Only gradually and with reluctance has orthodoxy readjusted its theology to make room in it for the theory of evolution. There are many theists today who believe in evolution, but they have had to make over their idea of God considerably. Indeed, they have not yet succeeded in making a satisfactory adjustment. It's still to be seen whether or not theism will survive the shock which the theory of evolution has given it. And so what Potter is saying here is that Christianity has increasingly redefined itself in order to accommodate the demands of the secular realm. And boy, how do you see Radical Two Kingdom theology doing that? Uh, they keep redefining Christianity uh, in terms of its impact um, in the secular realm to accommodate that so-called secular realm. And I just want to put a stake in the idea of secular. We use that term so frequently and so flippantly, but the biblical Christian understands that if secular means a position that's as starting from nowhere, 
a position that does not presuppose some kind of faith or worldview system. If that's the definition of secular, then secular does not exist. We really should, Christians really should think about, about dropping secular and secularism in that sense out of their vocabulary. Um, theism has survived the shock, but its survival, uh, the shock of evolution, the shock of having to change, but its survival has more often been in spite of the visible church's lack of proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life rather than because of its resistance to alien worldviews. The evangelical and American trend to compartmentalize reality into sacred and secular categories is a legacy of the work of Thomas Aquinas and later in Protestantism by Bishop Butler. Aquinas held that while the will in man was fallen, the intellect was not. And with this understanding of an incomplete fall of man, Pandora's box was opened, releasing all the villainy that autonomous man could achieve with his reason divorced from revelation. And here we must insert the idea that this is why the presuppositionalist, the biblical Christian, those who are operating from a biblical worldview, um, this is why we just we don't have any tuck with natural law or natural law theory or those who want to try to recreate natural law. Um, we acknowledge that Christianity embraced natural law. We acknowledge that while at the same time saying that was really unfortunate. Um, but natural law presupposes that man can start from himself and read general revelation apart from many theological a prioris. And when presuppositionalists of the Vantilian or even Clarkian variety, the Bonsian variety, uh, find that appalling. This idea of um, divorcing reason from revelation uh, was described by Dr. Greg Bonson in his um, his book on Van Til's apologetic. We quote Bonson here. He says, The Thomistic approach assumes that fallen man is capable of reasoning in a proper way prior to repentance of sin and submitting to the Savior, and that knowledge and intelligible interpretation of experience, experience are philosophically possible apart from God's revelation, i.e. possible in terms of a basic perspective different from the Christian worldview. Man's own intellect, when used at its best, is thus granted the ability and the right to pass judgment on the credibility of God's word, its worthiness of faith. Reason set up as a judge, not simply a tool, takes a privileged position alongside faith. Unquote. So the consequences of such approach are manifold. First, as we have seen, the lordship of Jesus Christ ends up being limited to the arbitration of human reason, deciding where Christ will be allowed to be explicitly Lord. Man, in determining the sway of Jesus' lordship, becomes his own Lord. This was brought home to me again when in a recent discussion with a prominent Reformed theologian, I was informed that, quote, there is no Christian economics. And this despite the fact that his own confession gives a statement that is the Heidelberg on theft that would make a good beginning in formulating a Christian economics. And here we cite the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 42. In God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor, 
by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, and any other means forbidden by God. By Lord's Day number 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism, I could preach against inflation. I can preach against the Federal Reserve. I could preach against uh, Keynesianism. I could preach against um, federal deficits. I would say that that is Christian economics, and yet this guy tells me with a straight face there is no such thing as Christian economics. Of course, he was an R2K chap. They don't believe there's Christian anything um, except the Christian church. No such thing as Christian family, no such thing as Christian education, no such thing as Christian law, no such thing as Christian culture, um, no such thing as Christian marriage. Um, those categories just don't exist. So R2K is part of the villain of what we're going, we're looking at here. The second consequence of such a Thomist approach is that in removing the lordship of Christ from the secular realm, so-called secular, one removes his law standard in that realm and at the same time replaces it with the legal standard of some other lord. As Dr. Martin was fond of saying, nature abhors a vacuum. And since that remains true, the removal of Christ as Lord from the secular realm means a replacing of all objective standards found in the revelatory scriptures of the king for subjective standards found in Sharia law or positivistic law or Hindu caste law, depending on one's self-referential desires. And so the idea of law by itself requires us to affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, if his law standard is removed from the so-called secular realm, that means the law standard of some other God, not a neutral God, some other God, is going to fill its place. And this, all Christians who are Christians should anathematize. Well, we've looked at this idea of how it is that Christendom is dissipated. We talked about the Nazi king Jesus, his incredibly shrunken realm. And now we want to look at how we can go from light, um, how we can, go, we can go on to light from this darkness. In the days of the Reformation, the principle was submission to God. In these days, the principle is revolt against God. That is why there rages again today one universal war in church state in the world of learning, one holy battle over the supreme question to submit unconditionally to the law of God or not. The embracing of a different standard can be seen by the shift in the approach of the revolutionary West to educational disciplines, beginning in especially with the endarkenment, sometimes uh, wrongly called or labeled the Enlightenment. So if you hear me using the word endarkenment, that's a better word than enlightenment. Um, so there was a shift that began with the endarkenment and continued through to the present. This shift has made itself known in the various disciplines with their emphasis upon increasing humanistic, evolutionary, naturalistic, and status-type training standards that are derived from some pagan god. We'll consider just four of those fields in order to provide a Whitman sampler of the shift that the church is facing as it contemplates its necessity to once again proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every, every area of life.
Thank you for joining us this week. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor FM. Don't you know she could bring a good feeling ain't had in such a long time? Save my life, I'm going down.